Everybody loves a good mystery, don't they? Who is your favorite sleuth? Is it Sherlock Holmes? What about Angela Lansbury's character, Jessica Fletcher? Or if you're maybe a little older like me, Nancy Drew and the Hardy Boys? Scooby-Doo. I think my favorite is Hercule Poirot, Agatha Christie's French inspector. Bel- is, he, is, is he Belgian? I should, give him, I should give the Belgian credit. But I love a good mystery. I love unveiling and putting together the pieces. And oftentimes, at the end of the book or at the end of the movie, the inspector or the detective will come out and say, now I'm going to tell you exactly how it was done. And they explain piece by piece, part by part, and it maybe flashes back to different parts. And oftentimes, the most clear evidence is actually right out underneath your nose. Right on the surface are the keys to solving mysteries. The Bible actually talks about mysteries in this life as well. And so let me just point to a few verses here, a few passages from the Bible. Deuteronomy 29, 29. The secret things belong to the Lord, our God, but the things revealed belong to us and to our children forever that we might follow all the words of this law. Isaiah 45 says this, I will give you the treasures of darkness, riches stored in secret places so that you may know that I am the Lord, the God of Israel who summons you by name. Second, 1 Corinthians 2. No, we speak of God's secret wisdom, Paul says. A wisdom that has been hidden and that God destined for our glory before time began. And lastly, Colossians 1. The mystery that has been kept hidden for ages and generations, but now is disclosed to us, the saints, those who follow Jesus. So there are mysteries that God talks about in his word. Most importantly, Jesus talks about this in this very important verse in Matthew 13. Here's what Jesus says. The disciples came to him and said, why do you speak to people in parables? Parables are a story with a point. He replied, the knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of heaven has been given to you, but not to them. The knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom. So there are secrets to this kingdom that we can discern. And yet I will submit to you, Jesus put them right out there in the open. The evidence was right on the surface. He doesn't hide it from everyone. He actually wants to make it known to us. So there are secrets to following Jesus. There are secrets to this kingdom that he wants us to advance. The kingdom of God. And I'm calling this new series, Discovering the Mysteries of the Kingdom. And I promise I will not wear this outfit every single week. Now, as we walk through this series, there is a little paperback book that covers the same concepts. It's called Jesus Secrets, and it's by Lynn Corey. Lynn Corey happens to be Amy Wadlow's uncle. This is the fourth of Lynn's books. Many of his books are about loving your neighbor and neighborhood initiative. And so this covers some of that that thinking, but it 
covers these secrets that we're going to be talking about on Sunday mornings. So he is graciously, Uncle Lynn has graciously given us 75 copies of this. So at the end of the service, if you want to grab a copy out at the red table, you can do so. Or you can get one for Kindle. I think it's maybe free for your Kindle or your iPad. And it's about $7 if for some reason you're watching this online, you'll see our friend Bethany will put the link into the, to the chat for you so you can order this book if you'd like. And so your reading assignment then is to get this book and read chapter one this week. Now, before you think this is going to be a big reading assignment, it's only about six pages per week. I think you can do it, and it goes with this series for eight weeks. So that's Jesus' Secrets available to you. Understanding how we advance the kingdom of God. So this first mystery, it's chapter one in Jesus' Secrets, but it's sermon one in our series. And I'm calling it Discovering the Secret of Loving Like Jesus. At approximately 3.20 on the morning of March 13th, 1964, 28-year-old Miss Kitty Genovese was returning to her home in a nice middle-class area of Queens. She parked a car in a nearby parking lot, turned off the lights, and started to walk to her second-floor apartment, some 35 yards away. She got about as far as the street light when a man grabbed her. She screamed, and the lights went on in the 10-floor apartment building nearby. She yelled, he stabbed me! Please help me! Windows opened in the apartment building and the man's voice shouted, let that girl alone. The attacker looked up and then fled. But Miss Kitty, she struggled to get to her feet. The lights went back off again in the apartments and the the attacker came back and stabbed her yet again. She again cried out, I'm dying, I'm dying. And again, the lights came on and the windows opened in many of the apartments nearby. The assailant got into his car and drove away, and Miss Kitty staggered to her feet, and that was 3.35 in the morning, and the attacker returned once again, found her in her doorway in front of the stairs, and stabbed her a third time, this time with fatal consequences. Now, this is a real story, poorly acted, out of the New York Times from 1964, It explains in the story, although it's hotly contested, that 38 people had some kind of, were some kind of witness to this awful crime that night. And you might ask yourself, what's wrong with these people? Why would they turn on the lights and yell down to the assailant and not intervene, not engage? This was a national headline, maybe some of you remember it. So, what's wrong with these people? That question is what we're going to tackle today in discovering the secret of loving like Jesus. You see, we're going to look at Luke 10, which has a similar story of someone who is in peril, and yet two people decide not to engage. They are witnesses of this terrible crime, but they don't help at all. So this man who's left for dead... We'll find out what happens with him. He has a better, better outcome than Miss Kitty. So as we look at this familiar story that many of you would call the, good, the story of the Good Samaritan, I'm praying that the Holy Spirit's actually going to show us new ways on how we can love others and that there might be a new compassion that God would put in our hearts as we 
approach our life this fall. So you can turn to Luke 10. It'll also be on the screen behind me. Luke 10, Jesus is ministering and on one occasion, verse 25 says, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? How will I know I'm going to the good place versus the bad place? Verse 26, what is written in the law? Jesus asks, how do you read it? So this man is trying to test Jesus. Jesus then begins to test this man. And the teachers of the law were more like college Bible professors, if you will, kind of spiritual police also. Jesus reserved his most harsh criticism for these leaders. Why? Because they were making it difficult for people to follow God. They were actually adding rules and laws to the already 613 laws in Leviticus. And these men, they were threatened by Jesus because Jesus spoke as one with authority. And they were just trying to hold on to the old structure, trying to preserve their own position. And they were constantly trying to trap Jesus so that they could someday put him on trial and perhaps he'd be put to death and they would be rid of him. So the teacher of the law, verse 27, he answered, well, here's your answer. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. The man is quoting the Shema, Deuteronomy 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, our God, our God the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. He's also quoting from another Old Testament scripture, Leviticus 19, verse 18, which simply says, love your neighbor as yourself. Verse 28, Jesus grades the test. You have answered correctly. You passed the test. Jesus replied, do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself, this man. So he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? You can hear him with like a little bit of an attitude. In my, in my, only in my head. The man answered correctly. He, what's the real issue? His heart posture. He's asking the question, who is my neighbor? And everyone in that culture knew who your neighbor was. Your neighbor was a Jew and or someone who had converted to Judaism. Anyone else was your enemy. In fact, they had rules and laws that if a wall fell down and rubble was on top of someone, you had permission to uncover the person until you figured out whether it was a Jew or not. If it was a Jew, you could save them. If it was a Gentile, you were to leave them. That's serious. We are way past prejudicial thinking. We're now wanting complete calamity for someone else who's not a Jew. So he's asking a question that no, everyone knows the answer to. But what he was trying to figure out is how can I limit those who I have to love? How can I do the very least amount His posture is more like, how, what can I get away with here? What's the minimum I can do? So Jesus tells a story. He never says it's a parable. 
I believe this could be a real story that someone once told him. But either way, Jesus is telling this account of what happened. And this is going to confront this man's hard heart. His hard-hearted posture toward loving others. So Luke 10, verse 30. In reply, Jesus said a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he fell in the hands of robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. So this man is traveling on a very dangerous road. This is the road from Jerusalem to Jericho. It has all sorts of rocks and places for criminals to jump out and be able to, to mug you to take your stuff. Even up until 1930, this was still a very dangerous road to go on. Very remote. It has 3,300 feet of descending elevation, and it's 17 miles long. So this is a well-worn road, by the way. This is the, the path that many pilgrims would take to go to Jerusalem for the feasts, but it didn't make it safe. So this man, he's confronted by bandits. Now, in the, in the Middle East, generally, if you were threatened and you handed over whatever they asked for, they would leave you alone. But if you protested them taking your stuff, they would then assault you physically. And I can imagine it's likely that this person said, no, you're not going to take my stuff. And they beat him. And they took even his clothes because his clothes were valuable and left him half dead. I think half dead means most likely unconscious, only partly dead. Think about that. So it's significant that he's naked, not because it's embarrassing, although that's probably true. I don't, I've never lain unconscious in the road naked. But they're all of the distinguishing things on his body that would have said what whether he was a Jew or of another Gentile race, we're not there. He wasn't conscious, therefore you couldn't hear his accent to find out where he was from. He didn't have any things that were regional left because they had all been stolen. So you couldn't tell who this person was. He was simply a person. He was a human being, one in need. Verse 31, a priest happened to be going down the same road. You're thinking, this is good news. The priest, he's the one that really mediates between God and man. Surely he's gonna have a really godly response. So he's going down the same road and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too, a Levite, when he came to the place, saw him, passed by on the other side. So what's going on here? Priest is coming down the hill. He avoids the man. Now, there were rules that if you were a priest and you touched a dead body, you would be ceremonially unclean and you would have to go through a whole process of cleaning yourself up before you could work again. But I would argue he's going down the hill. He's coming from his rotation as a priest. This is not that big of a deal. Think two-week quarantine. We can all do that. We've all done that. But he doesn't want to get anywhere close. In fact, they believed that if even if your shadow passed over someone who was dead, then you were also defiled. This is religion at its worst. So, though that there were some rules for mercy in these kinds of situations, the priest 
completely avoids the man. Let's think of this person as a pastor who won't help. Can you imagine if you were coming to church this morning and you were broken down on the side of the road and I just sped right by? You would have words, and I don't know that they would be repeatable in church. That guy's supposed to be a pastor. He's supposed to reflect who Jesus is. I was doing a trash cleanup. I love cleaning up trash. It is one of the best ways to love our city is to clean up any trash you see. So let me deputize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit of being called to trash pickup ministry to make our city beautiful. So I'm walking down fifth, uh, fifth, fifth, uh, toward Fifth and Ivy, and I've got a group of uh, four or five high school girls, and we're, we're, we're loving the city, we're doing this thing on a Saturday morning, and there's all kinds of trash on the ground from all the parties that happened the night before. And so I've got this, this, this big garbage bag, and I'm putting all the stuff in. Well, I didn't realize that there was a broken bottle that was in the bag, and as I was stepping off the curb, the bag just pulled across my leg and sliced my leg right open. Oh, now I'm bleeding all over the place. So I'm trying to hold my leg and going, okay, I probably need to probably get to the hospital. So I'm sitting on the curb there at Fifth at Ivy and looking for someone who might be able to take me to the hospital because I know that I need stitches. And so I'm waiting and waiting and I'm asking everybody that's walking by, please, will you help me? I need to get to the hospital. And everybody's ignoring me. I'm just thinking, what in the world's going on? Finally, this older couple came into the little store and I said, please, you've got to take me to the hospital. And they looked at me and they said, um, I don't know. We're afraid you're going to get blood in our car. Please, please, will you take me to the hospital? I promise uh, we can put some. So we ended up putting newspapers down on their floorboard and I'm holding my leg together. And, and we, I finally get to the hospital and I'm talking to them about Jesus the whole way. I'm like, this must be why they, they've, I, they're, I'm, they're, I'm going to tell them about who Jesus is. And this is great. And I got out and by the end, they said, we're sorry that we were so slow in taking you. We know this is the right thing to do. And compassion didn't come quickly for them. In fact, I might imagine that maybe compassion never came to their hearts for me. But they were just doing the right thing. And it, oftentimes the same thing is true for us, that compassion doesn't visit our hearts. And it's easier not to get involved in certain things and cases. We think we must be too busy to help out someone in need. So this next man who comes along, we have, that's the priest. The next man is a Levite. He's your guy who works at the church. In this case, he works at the temple. He has a little bit lower position. Therefore, you know, he can get his hands dirty with dead people. And it's not quite as much of a two-week quarantine. Maybe it's only one-week quarantine. It's not that big of a deal. But the Levite avoids the inconvenience of helping as well. And you could, so you can think about this as your life group leader or a Bible study teacher or someone you look up to who lives out their faith. This might be your spiritual boot camp coach. More than likely, as I study this passage, I think this Levite knows who's on the road ahead. Oftentimes, if you were going to walk a barren, remote road, you would know who else was on the road in front of you or behind you because that might be the difference between life and death. I believe he knows that the priest is ahead of him. And he realizes that if the priest didn't stop and help, surely then that gives him a pass. That if the, the priest didn't help, then surely this must be the right thing not to touch him, 
not to approach, not to help. He's thinking, well, if the priest thought I was okay to go by, then who am I to contradict him? I mean, in fact, if I help him, I might be showing up the priest and then, and then bringing disfavor on him and then perhaps, maybe perhaps even on myself. You find the loophole and you walk away. And we do the same thing. We use the behavior of others and say, well, they didn't do it, so I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to engage in that way. So the priest doesn't think anyone's watching. I'm imagining. His behavior sets the tone for those who follow him. And as I prayed about this, I felt like I got a word for us leaders. I always want to talk to leaders every time I preach. I want to make sure that I take a moment and talk about what, what are the leadership axioms in any passage. And here's what I came up with. As leaders, when we compromise, it gives permission to those who follow us to do the same. As leaders, when we compromise, it gives permission to those who follow us to do the same. This is why we have to be so careful about the way that we live. Not because we have a ton of rules that we've set up to be religious, like the religious leaders, but because we care about the people that follow us. And I don't want to cause them to stumble. I don't want to cause you to stumble. There's certain things I don't say, I don't engage in, I don't, I don't move toward because you're too important to me. Albert Einstein said this, setting an example is not the main means of influencing others. It's the only means. More is caught than taught. And when I spend time with people who really walk with Jesus, I learn more from just watching them than the things that they say. So listening to Jesus listening to this story, I can imagine the crowd, they're all like, okay, so what's going to happen? We're expecting the third guy. It's going to be like this common man. He's going to be this common Jewish guy, and he's going to outdo those religious guys, and it's going to be great. And, and the Jews love that. They loved it when the common man got it right, and the spiritual leaders got it wrong. But Jesus gives a twist to this story. Instead, Jesus says an enemy of the Jews, a Samaritan comes along. Spoiler alert, he's going to be the hero. And we're supposed to actually act more like him. Verse 33, but a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was. And when he saw him, he took pity on him. The word really is compassion. I don't love pity here, but God bless the NIV translators. He took compassion on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine that was medicinal. And then he put the man on his own donkey and took him to an inn and took care of him. So Samaritans, let's talk about them for a moment. They are half Jewish and they had married into the Assyrians who had come in to the northern 10 tribes and taken over and scattered those peoples. They were looked at as half-breeds, as people who had compromised. They were despised by the Jews. They were looked at as the enemy. There were even regional laws that said, if you save the life of a Samaritan, you will be punished severely. The prejudice was so thick you could cut it with a knife. This is why Jesus says, we're going through Samaria. The disciples are like, no, we're not. Jesus is like, yeah, we are. And they're like, no, we're not. Jesus says, it is we must go through Samaria on their way to Jerusalem. So the Samaritan saw the man, 
felt compassion. So what creates compassion? I'm not entirely sure besides the love that God pours through us through the Holy Spirit. You can talk about that in your life group. It's one of your life group questions this week. But the feeling of compassion is what was different between him and the priest and the Levite. Now, compassion in action looked like treating his wounds, putting him on his own donkey, which means now he's walking, took him to an inn, and then took care of him. And by the way, an inn in that day wasn't like he checked him into another room and like forgot about him for the night. It was probably only two rooms in that, ha- in that building, and you're all sleeping in the same room. So he's probably nursing all night, taking care of this man who is mostly dead. Verse 35. The next day he took out two silver coins and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. So he's paying it forward. He's taking uh, basically two days' wages. Whatever you make in one, for one day's wage, double that. That's how much he left there, two denarii. This is a financial sacrifice. We read these things in the Bible like these people are like loaded. Most of them only had one outfit that they, they didn't have an extra set of clothes. That's why those clothes were taken off this guy and he was left naked because the clothes were valuable. So there's a sacrifice here, a willingness to give, a willingness to say, okay, I'm going to go without something that I really want to help this other person. And he promises that there's, if there's any further expense, he's going to cover it. I'm going to be good for it. Here's my Visa card, if you will, right? It's a commitment to a continuing, caring posture. That even when I'm gone, I want to make sure that this person's going to be okay. I'm going to follow it through to the end. I'm not going to just do a little something and go, good luck, be warm and be filled. And then Jesus asked, verse 36, which of these Three, do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. Jesus asks, who was a neighbor? The man can't even say the name Samaritan. He just says, oh, the one, that that one guy, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus is answering the man's question about who your neighbor is. And that is who you should love. With the answer, you should love everyone, even if they're your enemy. So compassion without action is just observation. It's not love. Compassion without action is just observation. It's not love. Just because you feel bad for something that you see on TV or someone you hear about or something you read on Facebook doesn't mean that you're actually compassionate. I believe compassion is always linked with action, moving it to love. Our culture is really good at this kind of compassion. Oh, bless your hearts. And then it stops there. Feeling bad that someone's suffering all the while passing by and not helping ease the pain is what the priest and the Levite did. And yet Jesus' command is clear. He picks up Leviticus 19 and he makes it his own command with his new covenant that he's inaugurating on this night before he's 
when he's betrayed and he goes to die, he says, a new command I give to you, John 13, verse 34. Love one another as I've loved you, so you must love one another. You must. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. So our love for one another is the proof that God exists. It's the litmus test. It's the distinguishing mark of Christians. It's what will help you know someone is a believer, even when they haven't talked about Jesus yet. You'll see the love in them and go, oh, I bet you that person follows Jesus because they, they smell like Jesus because of the love that surrounds them, that they give away. I want to smell like that. I want to look like that. I want to embody who Jesus is in my love for one another. And I realize it's going to cost me. It's going to cost me time, effort, energy, money. I'm going to have to miss out on opportunities that I had before. Why? Because this is one of the secrets of the kingdom. That my life has purpose and meaning and power when I'm giving my life away. He who wants to to gain his life must lose it for my sake. And first of all, love one another. It was a little girl, read a story about a little girl afraid of a thunderstorm. Her dad was holding her, her hand and telling her, don't be afraid, Jesus is with you. He's never far away. He says, yeah, yeah, daddy, I want you to be with me because sometimes I also need someone with Jesus with skin on. And we need to be Jesus with skin on to a watching world. So what keeps us from loving people like this? What keeps us from engaging? Four things. Just want to talk about real quick. First of all, religion. The priest and the Levite, they prioritized ministry over, ministry to the many over loving the one. We can be so tied up in programs and other things that we miss the individual in front of us. I'm working so hard to be present with the person right in front of me. So much so that sometimes I don't know what to say next because I'm trying to listen. I don't want to be thinking about how to debate what they just said while they're talking. I don't want to live like that anymore. That's not what love looks like. We're talking at people instead of talking with them. What if you walked into a cafe in Chico and you said, there is a, there, those two are Christians, that guy's a Christian, those two ladies over there are Christians, and that person behind the counter, that's a Christian. And here's how I know why. Because they're listening to each other so intently. They must be Jesus followers. Christians should be the best listeners in the world. Listening is how we begin to love others when we don't know how to love them. Don't let religion get in the way of loving someone else. The ministry of one to the many versus one to one or one to few. The second one is a lack of compassion. You knew this was coming, right? Some of us really struggle with this. Some of us struggle with loving people who are homeless, people who have a different worldview, who have a different political view than you. In fact, you move away from them instead of moving toward them. Sometimes we want people to get what they deserve instead of really rooting for mercy for them. There's something about mercy in love. 
There's something powerful about mercy that says, I don't want you to pay for all of these things that you've done. I don't want you to get what you deserve. I want you to have forgiveness and have life to the fullest. And yet we treat each other and others we don't know as if we're waiting for them to get judgment. That's not what love looks like. That, looks, that is a lack of compassion. How are we gonna learn how to love our actual neighbors? I don't know about you, but the neighbors on my block aren't, they don't all think the same. They don't look the same. They're not from the same ethnicity. They're not from the same culture. They're definitely all over the political spectrum. You can just tell by all the signs in the yards. How am I ever gonna learn how to love my neighbor? How are you gonna learn how to love your neighbor? You're gonna learn it by right here. This is the laboratory. The church is the laboratory for the command of Christ. To learn how to love someone who doesn't look like you, doesn't think like you. Think, well, wait a second, they're Christians. They should think like me. We're all in process. We need to learn how to listen to one another, how to love one another. Not politics. God has a heart for governance. We've got a, a recall election this week. Christians should be totally engaged in this process. But we're not very gracious with each other about it, are we? It is so hard to be a spiritual leader in this climate because I see what Christians are saying to other Christians and they don't smell like Jesus on both sides. God has a heart for governance. He, has a, he wants things to be rightly aligned with his purposes. But we've got to be rightly aligned to one another. Want me to tell you something that will shock you a little bit? I have political conversations with almost everybody I talk to. Almost everyone. I've never gotten in a fist fight about it. I actually... Say what my opinion is, but I do a lot of listening. And you know what? I've even reconsidered some of the things that I think and feel. Because Jesus works through people who have a different opinion. Church, it's time for us to look more like Jesus as far as all these things are concerned. And if this means you have to get off Facebook, please leave Facebook. Please look like Jesus. You didn't think we were going to go here today, did you? It's the outfit. When you surround yourself with people who only think like you, you don't, you don't grow. Do you realize that? If you don't surround yourself with some people that are different than you, that will challenge your thinking, you won't grow. Well, that's the second one. Third one. Prejudice. So much has been made of prejudice that still exists in our society in the last few years. And this story that, tells, that Jesus is telling is, is geared to convict the hearts of these Jewish people that, wait a second, we're, we're supposed to emulate our enemies? There's no way. And as a church, we're fully committed to loving the nations and being a multi-ethnic congregation. 
Okay, so let's just get this out of the way. We condemn all racism on all forms. On the flip side of that, I love finding the beauty of who God is in every single culture. Every single person from different cultures, I go, wow, God, you're so amazing. You put that in that culture. I'm richer because I connect with people from other countries, other cultures, other places. So last year we had 22 international teachers, Fulbright scholars, who were here at Chico State and we we had a dinner and we partnered them up with one person from Neighborhood Church just to get to know them, to love them. We served a great dinner. I think we did Mexican food, which was really fun. It was lasagna. Okay, we do, so it's lasagna. Thank you, Karma. Just in case you think nobody's listening to what I'm saying. I just got a phone call, the staff doesn't know yet, about hosting 16 another 16 Fulbright scholars from other countries, and we're so excited to have them for dinner later this month. So we're committed to this. We want to push into this. We want to look for opportunities to love the nations. Prejudice has no place in the kingdom. Fourth, inconvenience. This is the one you figured, right? We pack our schedule so full that there is no way you can actually help that person who is stranded on the side of the road. There's no way that you can actually take the time to help someone move. There's no way that you could actually find some money in your budget or sacrifice to be able to give a gift card so that family could get that that meal that they need. And I believe we have to learn to walk slowly. Walking slowly because we know there's going to be someone in the crowd that Jesus is going to point out to us that we're supposed to have a conversation with, we're supposed to pray for, we're supposed to give something to, to minister to. As we have taught street pastors over the years, it's the street pastor walk. I'm going to linger and I'm going to walk slow because I'm expecting that God's going to show me someone I'm supposed to connect to. Why? Because we have a a value here for being spirit-led. We believe Jesus is always speaking in our ear, highlighting people, telling us what to do. And sometimes that means you take a risk. And sometimes that means you feel a little foolish. And sometimes that means your heart is pounding. That's life to the fullest. That's what it's supposed to look like. You're supposed to be just a little bit scared. Oh, Jesus, I hope this is you. And guess what? You ask God for opportunities, he's gonna do something. Doesn't mean you're always gonna be comfortable, but boy, is it gonna be fun to reflect on it and see the growth in your own heart. Okay, last part. I promise I'm gonna finish here. How can we be more compassionate? This really simply, we gotta ask God for compassion. Why? Because Romans 5, 5 says, it's the Holy Spirit that pours out the love of the Father through us to others. He's the one that gives us the love that we need to love others. That's the greatest news that I'm gonna tell you today. It's not about working harder. It's about surrendering more. Do you hear a a theme? It's always about surrender. It's always about saying, God, give me what I need to be able to give to this other person. That is a prayer that God will always answer because it's on his heart. It's his his will. So, two, just open our eyes to see needs because they're all around us. Just because you see a need doesn't mean you're the one to meet it. It might mean that you bring somebody in to partner with you that has the funds or the the resources or the know-how. I'm constantly putting people together that have needs and that have answers for those needs. The church is part of the solution for that. When it doesn't happen just organically, I'm the matchmaker and go, you've got this skill, you've got this need, you guys need to meet each other. Let's see if we can figure this out. 
We do this all the time at our office. Almost every day we're picking up the phone trying to figure out how to put people together so the body of Christ meets the needs of others. So we got to open our eyes to see needs all around us. There are needs with your neighbors, needs with your classmates, needs in your family that God's going to call you to meet. Well, sometimes we got to meet those needs. That's number three. Just giving a help in hand, taking initiative, sending the card, visiting someone in the hospital, buying groceries for somebody in need, babysitting for somebody so they could go to a doctor appointment. The list goes on and on. But most importantly, our most powerful tool is prayer. We talked about that earlier when we talked about all of the answers to prayer, and I just scratched the surface. We need to be a people who are constantly asking God, God, will you intervene? Will you meet the need? There was a young woman backpacking in Colorado. He was, she was crossing a stream and lost one of her shoes. And if you've ever been backpacking, losing your shoe is a really bad deal. So she fashioned a, a makeshift shoe out of a piece of cloth, a piece of towel, and some green sticks. And she's hobbling down the mountain trail. And a woman is coming the other direction, says, what happened to you? Oh, I lost my boot in the stream. I'm hoping to be able to get out before dark. And the woman reached in her pack and pulled out a sandal and said, here, use this. You can mail it back to me later. The woman greatly, gratefully accepted the sandal, wore it to set off down the Trail a few days later, the sandal arrived in the mail with a note saying this, I passed several people who noticed my predicament, but you're the only one who offered any help. It made all the difference. Thanks for sharing your sandal with me. Sometimes love is as simple as seeing a need and meeting the need. But are we willing to open our eyes to see? Are we too afraid that we're gonna somehow get committed to something we can't follow through on? Are we willing to roll up our sleeves and love? I'm really praying that this season will look different for us. In this world that seems and feels like it's tearing apart and becoming more divided, you have the answer. You have Jesus, the one who sets us free, who provides for our needs, who heals our, all of our diseases. He heals our hearts emotionally. You have the answer. And so would you stand? Prayer folks, if you'd come down forward, we'll have folks to pray for you. I just want to pray for a fresh filling of the Holy Spirit and a gift of his love for us. So Lord, would you fill our hearts with your love that we might go from this place anxious and excited to show who you are to others by loving them really well. Father, I pray for a gift of your love into our hearts right now in Jesus' name. Holy Spirit, come and fill us afresh that we would be empowered and ready to love in Jesus' name. Thank you for this church family. Thank you that we get to make a difference in this city and in the region. We pray that each house would be filled with a new love this week. Thank you for allowing us to see and discover this first secret of yours in Jesus' name. Amen. So God bless you. We'll look forward to seeing you next week.